Welcome to Talking Legal History. This is your host, Siobhan Barco. Philip Tai is a historian of modern China with research and teaching interests that include legal history, economic history, and diplomatic history. Today we'll be discussing his book, China's War on Smuggling, Law, Economic Life, and the Making of the Modern State, 1842 to 1965. Dr. Tai, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm very honored to be on the show. To begin, could you give us a brief overview of your book? Well, China's War on Smuggling is a legal and economic history of smuggling on the China coast from about the mid-19th century to the mid-20th century. It basically looks at smuggling from different perspectives, the practice of smuggling, the uh, suppression of smuggling, and the significance of smuggling, basically trying to understand how smuggling operated, who were the major players, who benefited over the commodities trafficked, as well as state officials, customs officers, and then ordinary people. What did they get from smuggled goods? Why did they oppose or support smuggling? And then the larger issues that this study raises concerning how smuggling could intersect with bigger, broader issues in modern Chinese history. Questions of legal authority, questions of economic changes, questions of the evolution of state authority. So basically, the book is about smuggling, but in some ways, it's more than just smuggling, more than just illicit activities. It encompasses a broad range of questions. How do you uncover a history based on illicit activities that the actors involved were trying to hide? What sources did you use? That is a great question because it goes right to the heart of how to do history of activities that do not want to be noticed. There is a problem when you look at the history of crime, crimes like smuggling, where there might be an overrepresentation of records of crime in the archives. When you think about it, those records that are in the archives in many ways are incidents of failure, basically what happens when smugglers get caught. And so there's a problem with that when you look at materials like customs records, legal sources, and whatnot. They provide the perspective of the state. They may skew towards incidents where people were caught or uncovered. So in order to balance that state-centered perspective, my study also considers other sources like newspapers, business records, and even literary fiction basically trying to bolster the state-centered perspective by complementing it with other perspectives, filling in the knowledge that state officials themselves lacked or didn't talk about. So the study draws on a diverse array of materials, what I call official sources, like customs records and legal cases, and then unofficial sources, newspapers, literary fiction, and so forth, trying to understand how they might have a similar or overlapping perspectives on a specific incident, or maybe they covered completely different things. So that's, I think, the key in order to write a history of illegal activities, activities in the shadows, is to consider sources that could give you that different perspective, not to rely on just one approach, one set of perspectives to the underlying reality. Okay, so that leads well into my next question, which is what new approaches does your work bring to the study of state building? So the question of state building, I suppose, when I was trying to understand how state building unfolded 
within Chinese history, as well as state building unfolding within the histories of other countries, whether you're talking about early modern states or modern states. Most of those studies have looked at questions of bureaucracies, you know, the expansion of bureaucracies. Maybe they've looked at the military, the expansion of military power, the expansion of laws, and so forth. My study adopts a different perspective, trying to look at state building from looking at smuggling, which you might think is, is something that just happens on the margins. In fact, what I try to argue is that smuggling was very important to state building endeavors in the Chinese context and in the context of elsewhere. When you look at the history of states, how did they actually raise money? They raised money through taxes, but most of the taxes before the advent or the introduction of the income tax, most states relied on customs duties, tariffs. So for the Chinese state, fighting smuggling was a very, very important endeavor in order to protect a critical source of their income. They had to suppress illicit trade. They had to make sure that they could tax trade. And so I think I try to adopt a novel approach, I, at least I think it's novel, a novel approach to understanding the state building process. And also, I try to, again, shift the perspective, not just to look at the perspective of state makers themselves, not just to look at the perspective of officials, but also individuals, communities, businesses, merchants, basically at the other end of these state building endeavors, because we don't want to see the state building process as this sort of natural course of history, you know, this teleology from A to B, how states rise, they grow, they expand in powers, it's all very bloodless and whatnot. In fact, I think that as many scholars have shown, going back all the way to the uh, sociologist Charles Tilley, the state building process is sort of like what we call state making as, as a protection racket. Um, basically, it's a much more fraught, much more contested process. And so my study adds to that research by trying to highlight how drawn out and contested that process was. How do states basically get people to pay their taxes, to obey their laws, and also to make sure that their imperatives or their policies are implemented? And then how do ordinary people, businesses react to that? What can smuggling and its suppression reveal about the interactions between state and society? I think from my perspective, I think the reason why I really liked looking at smuggling, besides these very uh, sensational stories, these very sensational incidents, is how they reveal the, the underlying tension between you know, laws on the books versus laws in action. When you try to understand how states try to regulate, try to police trade, you understand what the imperatives of the state is. Like, what did the state really care about? And also, you really understand what sort of policies they're trying to push. And then you flip that perspective again, and then trying to understand how did ordinary people react to that? How did they react to being told that what they were importing. Now they had to pay a lot more in taxes, or they used to sail from point A to point B. Now they're being told that they have to carry passports, or they are no longer allowed to go from point A to point B. So I think that looking at smuggling is just this very unorthodox, maybe, or unconventional way 
of revealing this relations between state and individual state and society, and then also this interplay between laws on the books, laws in action. What does studying lawbreaking help us understand about law and lawmaking? And do these patterns change? Hmm. I think that my study looks at smuggling and suppression over a period of 100 years, looking at the changes and continuities of different regimes, looking at it from the late Qing dynasty through the Republic of China and then through the People's Republic of China in the mid 20th century. And I guess what surprises me is that, yes, you would have changes in state imperatives, you know, laws keep expanding, the, the sort of the universe of what is considered permissible trade begins to steadily contract over time as states get more powerful, as they pass more laws, as they impose more taxes, as they defend more borders. But another thing that really surprised me was sort of how, as many times as things change, how they stay the same. How I would, for instance, look at newspaper accounts of smuggling over different decades, how they would describe commodities being smuggled from one point to another. And of course, the commodities change over time. Some commodities during the 1930s, for instance, one commodity that was very, very highly valued was white sugar because the state would impose lots of taxes on that. And then during the 1950s, another commodity that would be trafficked heavily would be something like a wristwatch for whatever reason. And what surprised me is that over time, even though the commodities change, some of the tactics of smuggling, some of the geographies of smuggling stayed the same. I mean, I always say that when you take some of these stories, if you just cover up their dates, change a few details, I swear, you you may not be able to discern what <laughs> what what came from when. And so I think from my perspective is that illegal activities, despite the best efforts of states and despite the gradual expansion of state power, there are just some activities that are just so hard to root out and so hard to combat. And I think that for me, smuggling in China on the China coast really highlights that. What does your study of smuggling reveal about broader social concerns in modern Chinese history? I think that smuggling for ordinary people was sort of a very ambiguous issue because looking at the course of modern Chinese history, Chinese consumers, like consumers everywhere, they want a good deal. They don't want to pay more if they don't have to. And you see how many people would vote with their wallet, so to speak, that when governments would raise tariffs, would try to impose more controls, people just want the goods that they want, and they want it cheaply. Throughout the course of modern China, however, there was also concerns, especially amongst elites and amongst government officials, about what is the harm of smuggling. Basically, when you import goods, let's say goods from Japan, and these goods don't pay tariffs, what is the sort of social harm? And throughout the course of modern Chinese history, you had governments trying to enforce laws, but also sort of trying to convince individuals, convince society about this very abstract harm to the Chinese nation. And you see that, I suppose, reaching its apogee, reaching its height in the People's Republic of China when the communist government would embark on all of these campaigns trying to explain to people how individual smuggling incidents actually have 
national or social-wide ramifications. If you buy goods and don't pay tariffs, you are depriving the state of money, money that would support your country. If you buy smuggled goods, illegal goods from places like, say, Japan, which was at war with China during the 1930s and 40s, if you buy foreign goods from, let's say, the United States, which was at war, you know, during the Korean War in the 1950s, you are harming. You are sort of trading with the enemy. So you see this sort of concern of states trying to not only convince people that it is important to help support this sort of broad, abstract notion of state finances, but also the notion of what it means to be supporting the Chinese nation. How did smuggling both challenge and bolster communist rule during the regime's formative years? The one thing that surprised me when I was doing research for this book, when I was writing this book, I was originally going to end my book, my research, in 1949, when the communists came into power. I thought that looking at smuggling, you see a lot of that in the late Qing, you see a lot of that in the Republican period. And then all of a sudden, after 1949, with the introduction of a stronger and much more invasive communist government, smuggling would stop. You you had also the introduction of a command economy. But what happened was when I went to the archives, I discovered that there were a lot of reports about how smuggling not only was present, but how in some ways it helped bolster this transition that the communist government was entering, trying to transition away from the, I, I don't know if you call it free, free market economy, but they're trying to transition towards the command economy. And some of the examples that I bring up in my book is that in trying to introduce all these new economic controls, all of these five-year plans, there would be considerable shortages that would emerge, plans on paper that don't meet reality and action. So the new communist government could declare that it wants to import only so much sugar, import only so much nylon, import so much this or that. And then what happens when demand outstrips supply? Well, ordinary people try to find ways, circumvent these controls to try to ameliorate some of these shortages. And also what I discovered was that this sort of smuggling was also done by state officials and also state-owned enterprises. One of the surprising things was that in order to meet some of these new quotas for this new command economy, sometimes state officials and managers of state-owned factories had to resort to smuggling, or they had to find smuggled goods for either certain inputs or certain outputs and whatnot. So I think that there is this very strange relationship in the early People's Republic of how smuggling would undermine state authority by depriving the state of its tax revenues, trying to undermine the regulations of the state, but also it helped the state to meet some of these quotas to soften that transition to the command economy. How does your work help us rethink modern China's engagement with 20th century global capitalism? That is a very big question. I think that my book talks quite a bit about tariff policies and also ways in which the Chinese state have tried to exercise greater control over the economy. And one way to do that is to exercise greater control over trade. So for instance, in this recent dispute between China and the United States over tariffs, tariffs actually have a very fraught history in modern China. After the opium wars, after the mid-19th century wars with 
the Western countries, China had to sign a series of, of these treaties, giving up all these sorts of privileges to Western powers, extraterritoriality, that is the right of foreigners in China to be immune to Chinese laws. But another concession they had to make was to surrender their tariff autonomy, basically give up the right to set tariffs. China would recover that in the early 20th century, but memories of that, memories of how critical tariffs were to the Chinese nation, to the Chinese state. That is something that is still very much animating Chinese state makers today. And also there is a realization that the Chinese economy and also foreign trade is just too important to be left in private hands. The state could and should make a much more concerted effort in regulating the economy. So what you see in China today, which is you have a Chinese state that has lower tariffs because it's part of the WTO now, a Chinese state that exercises very strong control over foreign trade, over the economy, that is very much linked to this experience in trying to combat smuggling, trying to exercise more control over the economy. Okay. Well, I really want to thank you for being on the show today. All right. Thank you very much.